When I got into my car, it was four degrees. When I got, by the time I got here, it had improved. It, it's, my car said it was up to six. So I just want to congratulate you for getting out of bed and getting here at all on the, in this sort of weather. Uh, it is a real privilege to be here today and it's my honour to speak on the topic of the, the big picture of the Bible. Um, now I'm actually a big picture person. I tend to like big picture ideas, I get great big picture concepts but that has a shadow side, it means I'm not all that good on detail. And this gets me into all sorts of trouble. Recently, I found myself dropped off at Brisbane Airport and once I was there, I realised I didn't have my phone or my purse. I suspected both were 20 minutes away, um, but I had no phone to get an Uber and I'd had no purse to get a taxi. Interesting dilemma. I might tell you what happened at the end of the, <laughs> end of the sermon, but you can think about what would you do in a situation like that? These kinds of sticky situations do not seem to happen to detail people. But that's okay. Today I'm talking about the big picture of the Bible. I can think of no more exciting big picture story than the story of the Bible and God's work revealed in the world and in humankind through the scriptures. That big picture starts, of course, in Genesis. And I'll just see if I can get this turned on. Yes. Um, where in the beginning God creates the heavens and the earth. Um, so he forms the, the sea and the land, he forms the stars and the moon, he forms the animals and plants. Finally, he forms humankind. After that, he has a bit of a rest. We see that God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. I've given you every plant yielding food, the seed that's on the face of the earth. God saw everything that he had made. Oh, I'm sorry, getting carried away and forgetting to click. Uh, God saw everything that he had made and saw that it was good. Now that idea where God said, I will bless you, comes from a Hebrew word that kind of means to bend the knee, which is really interesting, isn't it? So you've got this picture of this all-powerful creator God who can make the stars and the moon, the heavens, the sea, the land, living things, and yet he blesses these people. He bows the knee. He honours them. It also has the idea of giving a gift. God gives us the gift of life. It's a really astonishing claim. Um, if you look at the creation stories of the ancient Near East, the humans are basically created to be slaves of these capricious gods. But Yahweh is nothing like that. Yahweh is the God who blesses us. Yahweh is the God who loves us. God plants a garden in Eden where... Everything that uh, Adam and Eve could require is there. He wants them to have a close personal relationship. He wants them to thrive, in fact. There's another Hebrew word, Esha, that has that sense of, um, of really knowing joy and of thriving in life. And that's what's on God's heart for these people that he's created. 
God hope for from us? Interesting question. Um, we hope God hopes for us that we would love him. There's a commandment of Deuteronomy to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. We know from the New Testament God is described as being love. God is love. He's the loving parent who just wants to hear, I love you too. So what happens in our big picture story? God has created Adam and Eve. Well, what happens next is a bit like the two-year-old who is put in this room full of a 100 toys and, and told, you can play with anything, but please don't stick a fork in the PowerPoint. What does the two-year-old want to do? There is some strange thing in human nature. So Adam and Eve are given absolutely anything that they might want to eat in the garden, except for one thing. They missed the mark, of course. They decided the one thing was the thing they would like to do, instead of showing loyalty to the God who loved them. Um, I can't see all that well up the back. I might just do this for a second. Ah, yes. So God had actually said, if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, on that day you will actually die. Um, it wasn't a physical death he talked about. Adam lived a lot longer. But a death of the soul, a separation between ourselves and God, a schism in the soul of humankind. As humans, we're designed to be in this beautiful relationship with God. We're designed to walk and talk with him instead of designed to live feeling guilt and shame and alienation. I think God's heart is broken by all of that, this loving God. Sin has consequences that we see playing out as the story of the Bible unfolds. Um, Cain becomes overcome with jealousy at his brother and murders him and then tries to avoid responsibility. Adam had said, you know, this woman you put here, she gave me the fruit. I ate it. It's not really my fault. Cain said, you know, well, I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? And as the story goes on, we see that violence filled the earth. By the time of Noah, God's heart was filled with grief and he sought to reset the button, so to speak, with a family called with Noah and his family. Noah found favour in the sight of the Lord and when God's judgment came on the earth, Noah and the animals were in the ark. How did God's attempt to reset the button go? It's almost like a repeat of the first chapters of Genesis where God says, I'm going to bless Noah and your sons and say be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God bows the knee again. God blesses again. God honours again. God is looking for love and loyalty again. However, people kind of got a bit distracted from that. Uh, the next story is that all the people get together and say, come on, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a tower to the heavens. Um, there's just some interesting themes of human nature coming out in these stories we get in Genesis. Uh, there was a poll of 18 to 25-year-olds, um, and 51% of them said that being famous 
was one of their most important life goals. It's interesting. Like if 300 million people in the US, probably they can't all be famous. Um, but it's interesting how part of human nature is looking for a name for ourselves, often apart from God. So God scatters the people and tries to hit the reset button again. The call of Abram occurs in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you. He didn't know where it was. I will make you view a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and in you all of the families on earth will be blessed. In Abram we see once more the heart of God to bless. He wants all of the earth to be blessed through Abram. If we jump to the New Testament, Genesis chapter 3, it says that, sorry, Galatians chapter 3, you're getting mixed up. It says that those who believe in Jesus Christ are also descendants of Abraham. We are also called to be a blessing to all the earth. I wonder how God might be inviting you to bless those around you, perhaps with your $10, perhaps with your gifts, perhaps in discerning the needs in your community. I wonder. So Abram, as we know, probably better speed up. We're still in Genesis. I, I did promise we'd have a big picture run through the Bible in 20 minutes. Don't panic yet. Um, we then see that Abraham has uh, a son who then has um, two sons and Israel um, and then has 12 sons. And one of his sons, Joseph, actually saves the the nation of Egypt from famine. He also inspires an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical around an amazing Technicolor dream coat and becomes very powerful in the nation of Egypt. However, 400 years go by and the children of Israel have grown into a nation of a lot of people and the Pharaoh doesn't the new Pharaoh doesn't know anything about Joseph anymore and decides the Israelite people are a bit of a problem and he's going to make them all slaves. And things get harder and harder and harder and harder for the Israelites. So the Israelites cry out and God raises up Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God says to let my people go so that they can worship me. And Pharaoh says, mm, no, that's not happening. And then God sends ten plagues on the people of Egypt until finally Pharaoh says, let my people go. Off you go. You can go and worship the Lord. But as the people leave, Pharaoh changes his mind and sends the army off after them. Um, some of you, this might be evoking Charlton Heston in the movie where the water's part of the Red Sea. Does that evoking some stuff? So God actually parts the water of the Red Sea. The Israelites go through. And in the New Testament, this is used as actually an image of what baptism means. The people are in slavery. They go through the waters and they're released as free people at the other end. 
So we see this image recurs through the Bible as the people of Israel escape from slavery and move towards the promised land. There is a period of wandering in the wilderness after that. And when they're in the wilderness, God brings Moses up to the mountain of... What's the mountain? Sinai, that's it. Sorry, I had this mental blank. I actually did have one of those nights last night where um, I was sort of lying awake at 2am, so thank you for the the prompt. Um, But at Mount Sinai, God gives the Ten Commandments and the laws for the people of Israel. Why is God giving the law? Well, there's probably more than one reason. But one of the reasons that's stated in Scripture, this will show your wisdom and discernment to all the people who, when they hear these statutes, will say, surely this great nation has a wise and discerning people. What other great nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call to him? And what other great nation has statutes and ordinances as just as this entire law that I'm setting before you today. What God was wanting to do in calling the people of Israel was to be a light to the nations. This was going to be an amazing kind of place where the people of Israel would love the Lord their God, there would be no poor people among them because they would follow the laws, they'd set aside food for the poor, they'd set aside the edges of their harvest, they wouldn't let people get into long-term debt. They wouldn't let people have their land taken off them forever. There were all these rules that were set up to make a really just, thriving kind of community in Israel. And this was to be a light to the nations. God was testing them as they wandered through the wilderness to see if they would keep their commandments, to see if they would love the Lord your God, to see if they would be loyal to him. And then, of course, in Joshua, Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. Who learnt that song when they were little? Uh, So Joshua was the one who led the people of Israel to conquer the land of Canaan. And then there was a period of judges. It's actually a bit of an unstable time, actually, um, because the people of Israel, were they being loyal to the Lord? On and off. There were periods of conflict. There were periods of idolatry. Um, when periods of idolatry uh, happened, often the Israelites kind of got raided by people and then they'd start praying to Yahweh because they were oppressed and then God would raise up a judge. The famous judges were like Deborah, Gideon and Samson. And then in Israel there was a period of kings. The first king was King Saul and then God raised up King David. And gave an interesting promise that the throne of David will be established before the Lord forever. Now, of course, there isn't a king descended from David in Israel at the moment. But David was the one who was the father, eventually, of Jesus. And we know Jesus is the one that is going to reign over the earth forever. God's heart was that Israel would be a light to the nations, but there were periods where they didn't obey the Lord. And after many, many years of kings, uh, the people of Israel were taken into exile in Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. 
in this time of turmoil for the people of Israel, God did send prophets. It was a prophecy of hope. In the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea. For a child's been born to us, a son's been given to us, authority rests on his shoulders. He is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Even as Isaiah was prophesying that Babylonians would come and conquer the people of Israel as God's judgment, there was still this message of hope that redemption would come. There would be a Prince of Peace that would come and raise up Israel. That phrase, Prince of Peace, is an interesting term. It's the word shalom. We might translate it as peace, but it has a whole lot of other connotations. It captures the reality of wholeness within society and within the whole world. Shalom can mean safe, well, happy, has connotations of health, prosperity and peace. Shalom describes actions that lead to a state of soundness, wholeness, completeness or fullness. This is the will of God for the earth. This is the will of God for families. This is the will of God for you. Wholeness. Peace. Perhaps not as the world gives it gives us. There's other interesting prophecies that are happening at this time too. That there would be a suffering servant, despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering, acquainted with affirmity. But he's wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. By his bruises we're healed. Or we like sheep have gone astray, we've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is around 800 years before Jesus. But Isaiah is looking forward to a suffering servant who is going to be for the healing of the nations and for the healing of sin. So about 800 years later, there is a wonderful message that's proclaimed to the shepherds. For you born this day in the city of David, David's descendant, is a saviour, the Messiah, the Lord. Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace among those he favours. So the angels proclaim this message and then Simeon proclaims the message. Simeon is in the temple. Jesus has come and presented at the temple. And Simeon says, um, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the presence of peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people of Israel. This child is going to be the one who's going to bring God's blessing to Israel and to all the earth. Jesus is going to be the one to open the way for the Gentiles to come to, into this loving relationship with Yahweh. As Jesus grew up and entered ministry, he gave this beautiful message of blessing, of come that they might have life and that they will have it abundantly. I love the way this is translated in the message where Eugene Peterson writes, I've come that they might have life, more and better life than they'd ever dreamed of. It's got some beautiful connotations. Abundantly, more than expected, beyond what's anticipated, exceeding expectation, 
going past expected limit, excessive, greater, superfluous. It's God's heart for humankind that we will have fullness of life, that we will have joy. There's a deep sense of satisfaction that can come as we walk in the life of the Spirit, as Jesus puts his joy in us so that our joy might be complete. This path of joy, of course, is still the path of connection with God and the path of obedience and the path of connection with others. There's an interesting segue as we go on into the gospel story Back to what I talked about right at the start, how, in a sense, when God blesses humankind, it has this sense of, of bowing down. And Jesus literally does that with his disciples. We read in John 13, Jesus, knowing the Father, had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, tied a towel around himself, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel tied around him. Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings, the creator of the whole universe, as was beautifully read out to us this morning, is the one who comes and kneels and serves and blesses the people. It's pretty amazing if you stop and think about it, isn't it? How much God loves you. And then Jesus says these challenging words. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you also should do as I've done for you. Jesus, the one who comes to bless, invites us to be a blessing to others too. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself and humbled himself. The epicenter of the biblical story is Jesus' death and resurrection. He serves humankind in the most profound way possible through his death on the cross. In his death on the cross, he takes upon himself the guilt of humankind. He takes upon himself the shame that we experience. It's a pretty amazing exchange if you think about it. If you think about the worst thing you've ever done and you wince inside thinking of that, what God has actually done is put that guilt and shame and desire to hide and desire to cover up, he's put all of that stuff onto Jesus on the cross. I wonder if you've ever thought, oh, you know, had those moments where you go, I really suck, you know. But Jesus has taken the wrath of God on himself to free you from that sense. If you've ever wanted to punish yourself for something you've done, it's all right. Jesus has already done that. And most profoundly, do you have a fear of death? Because Jesus has come to set us free from all of it, free from guilt, free from shame, and free from the fear of death. Because in his resurrection... Jesus has conquered death and set us free. Adam and Eve might have hidden in the garden, but we don't need to hide from God or anyone else. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who trust in Jesus can also trust that they too will be resurrected 
for he who believes in me will never die. This risen Christ promised that he would return. The Bible ends with a vision of Christ's return and Christ making all things new. See, the home of God is among mortals. He'll dwell with them. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. The tree of life is at the end of the Bible story. We're the tree of knowledge of good and evil at the beginning, but we have the tree of life at the end, and the leaves of the tree are healing for the nations. The throne of God is on it, and the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him, and they will reign forever and ever. The biblical story looks forward, as Lorraine was indicating, to a time when all shall be made right, where there shall be shalom across the earth, where all shall know the love and blessing of God. So I wonder as we reflect on this just thumbnail sketch across the whole of the Bible story, whether there's an area of your life where you are wanting, I need a blessing from God right now. I'm feeling bruised and battered and I would like to receive more of the love and blessing of God. Or perhaps you're going, you know what, for me it's a challenge today to think about how might I be a blessing to others? I already feel really blessed. I just want to reflect on how I can be a blessing to others. So I invite you to just have a few minutes now just to pray and reflect, and you can write on your card also, as to how God might be speaking to you. So let's just have a few moments of quiet.